So, I'm going to start with a very beautiful Zen koan, where the uh, monk asked the master, how is it when the leaves have fallen and the trees are bare? And the master replies, body exposed to the golden wind. The koan is this. What are the leaves that fall? What is the body? And what is the golden wind? So some of you may be familiar. Zen koans, you don't try to figure out with your rational mind. At some point in practice, the answer spontaneously is known. So in Zen style, we'll we'll leave you dangling with that and and come back later to that koan. But uh, as we've said... 2,500 years ago, the Buddha said many things that we've quoted, but he said, if I could teach only one practice, I would teach you mindfulness of the body. He said, you're going to find no better friend than mindfulness of the body. And then a contemporary teacher who's saying basically the same thing, Eckhart Tolle, raise your hand if you've heard of him. Yeah. See, he's a very well-known teacher. For those of you who didn't, the two or three who didn't know who he is, he's obviously extremely world-renowned, and many, many people think he's quite developed. So Eckhart Tolle says, Do not turn your attention elsewhere in your search for the truth, for it is nowhere else to be found but within your body. So we're definitely hearing a repeating message this week, aren't we? In your body, in your body. So sometimes we're sitting, you may, you may be sitting and you know, being present with the sensation of your breath or maybe being present with some burning in your knee or something. And if you're like me, you may sometimes wonder, how is sitting here sensing this sensation going to lead me to being a more loving person? Or how is this going to lead to deep freedom or peace? How, how, you know, how does that work? So it doesn't always seem obvious in a moment of practice, but the Buddha is offering these practices, trying to show us, to lead us out of the suffering that is caused by the entanglements with all our fears and all our worries and all our, our mind. These practices are meant to take us out of this contracted self and help reconnect us with what has so many names but can't be named. We could call it essential nature, Buddha nature, that which is the great ease and openness of emptiness that is uh, boundless compassion, that which uh, in our tradition is sometimes called the natural state, that Essential nature. Julie, the other night, said one of our um, teachers of our lineage says, it's natural. That's the natural state, this openness, this compassion, which may not necessarily feel that way all the time, but I like the fact that it's called the natural state. So uh, this, this essence, this true nature or Buddha nature, what the Tibetans would call the great innate perfection, is the very 
most innermost essence of what we all are, yet it is obscured by our continual and almost amazing creativity with how much we can come up with mind of grasping and aversion. And as you sit in your practice and meditate, you might at some times just be sort of impressed at the endless creativity of <laughs> stories and fantasies and plans and comparisons and judgments. And, you know, it just, it's just amazing, isn't it? And it just keeps on going. And it's almost as though, if you, if you step back and you're like, why, why am I doing that one? Why am I judging myself so hard? And it's almost like that mind is trying to say, because if I do this, you know, I'll be a better person, or I'll, this will make me happy, or this fantasy will somehow make me feel good. So in our attempt, this sort of wild attempt to feel good through mind activity, we miss what we're searching for. We miss this innermost essence, which is right here. So uh, there's a really great teacher, Hamid Amas, who has uh, been very much of an important influence for a number of us here at Spirit Rock, the teachers and students. Um, he's written many books. He teaches in a different system, but it's a beautiful um, complement to our system. Hamid has a very good metaphor for the way we miss our, our essential nature. He uses the metaphor of 24-karat gold. So he said, um, so imagine that you have a 24-karat gold ring, but you don't know the difference between gold and brass. You don't know that gold is actually precious. So what you look at is the ring. But maybe this ring, maybe it was made a little sloppy. Or maybe it's just a little imperfect, or maybe it doesn't fit, or maybe you don't like the style. So you don't value the ring, because you don't know its actual value. Then later, as he goes on in his metaphor, you learn that the value in this ring, no matter how it looks, is the fact that it's made of gold. And you learn that the gold is, in fact, luminous and pure and value in it valuable in and of itself. So obviously the metaphor is um, clear, that seeing the gold in the ring, seeing its value, is like seeing our essence, our true nature, instead of being only seeing the ringness of ourself. So this is from Hamid. He says, everything that exists is gold. The gold is being and all of reality is being. The ego identifies itself with the shape the gold has taken on and said, that's me, I'm a ring. Then it decides whether the ring is good or bad, ugly or beautiful, and so on. And by saying that you are the ring, you forget the fact that you are gold. When you forget that you're gold, you lose your sense of absolute perfection, and it seems that something is wrong with you. When you feel that something is wrong, you try to see what is wrong with the ring. It's too big, it's too small. Maybe it should have been made in a more modern style or a more classical style. 
You start trying to improve on it a little bit, but whatever you do to it, something always feels a little off. As long as you don't see the goldness and the preciousness of it, you will always feel that something is missing, something is wrong, and you will always try to tinker with it to make it better. So is this sounding familiar? You know what he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, if you're sitting here paying any attention in meditation, you know what he's talking about. We're tinkering and judging all the time. We're in, clearly in meditation, we're training to begin to recognize and be able to rest in the goldness. But what we notice in our practice is that the ego is all about focusing on the ring. You with me? Yeah. So the ego judges and struggles with the ringness through the activity of grasping and aversion. So I I want my ring, my, you know, big, big important word to be a younger prettier ring. I want it to be a smarter and faster, better ring. I want to, you know, go get its special vitamins so it'll be m- m- more lovable ring. And, you know, I want to get liposuction and I want to get my ring a facelift. And, you know, then if I do all this, then I'll be at peace, won't I? Then it will somehow make it okay, won't it? That's the ego always working on this project that will never, ever work. But it's amazing that that doesn't stop it. Even though many of us here have been involved in the project for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you think at some point we go, well, I'm just going to stop. It has its own like momentum. It believes itself incredibly. It's amazing. It's important to see it. So we're run by this (laughs) nagging sense that I'm not quite good enough. And if I just keep tinkering, and there's a certain stress in it, and we're just run by that until we relax all this grasping at trying to be the perfect ring. And we discover that our very essence is gold. It's that leaning back. It's that shifting out of identifying with all that ego activity. And we come into something else. Ah, there's an open space here. There's more peace here. So, very important teaching from the Buddha. The Buddha says, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. He said, if anyone who's heard this has heard the whole Dharma, anyone who realizes this one teaching realizes the whole Dharma. So it's a big one, so I'm going to say it again. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Steep assignment. Because why? We cling all the time to everything. 
don't we? Or you might say resistance. The other side of that is resistance, but it's, it's just the other side of clinging. I mean, we cling. You can sit there in meditation. You're noticing, my God, I cling to my stories. I cling to my emotions, even when they're painful. I cling to plans. I cling to opinions. Whoa, do we cling to our views and opinions and judgments, don't we? We just glue on. We are not about to let go of that stuff, are we? We cling. Nothing whatsoever. Yeah, we cling all over the place. And it's not about judging ourselves for this. It's about seeing it. To see the whole Dharma. To see, wow, all over the place. The activity of the mind is this clinging, this identifying, this grasping. And we do cling to our stuff, too, don't we? I don't think we've received any notes so far in this particular retreat about people moving stuff. (laughs) But it's very delicate. You know, you come to the thing where nothing whatsoever is to be clung to, but don't touch my stuff. We, we, uh, my husband and I, for the first many years of our marriage, managed to move about every four or five years for some reason. And every single time we'd move, we'd go, how did we accumulate that much stuff in five years? You know, you don't even see it until you're moving. You're just taking out barrels of stuff. You know, how did that happen? We cling, especially in this culture. It's a stuff kind of culture, isn't it? There's a, there's a, um, Philip has his cartoon, so I'll tell you a cartoon I like about clinging. Guy's dying on his deathbed. You know how poignant and profound it is to be on one's deathbed, and the person's sort of leaning over, and the person, you can tell, is they're, they're going to say their, their wise last words, and the person's leaning over. And the person dying says, I wish I would have collected more junk. <laughs> right, I mean, we just laugh. Because that's what we do. We all collect junk. But when it's put in that perspective of on the deathbed, it's like, that means nothing. That junk. I wish I would have collected more junk. So all of this clinging, <clears throat> grasping, fuels our deepest and most persistent of all the clinging, which is the clinging to the sense of ourself as a solid, separate identity. That's the biggest of all our, our clinging. And the Buddha did not say we're bad, that we have to beat ourselves up, or that we're sinful because we do this activity. But he did compassionately point out, my dear friends, the cause of your suffering is this <coughs> clinging. And the possibility of your peace and freedom is in your opening and letting go. The possibility of your happiness is in opening, letting go. It's the whole of the Dharma. So I mentioned earlier that when the Buddha said, you'll find no better friend than mindfulness of the body. Every night you've been hearing these talks with various reasons why he might have said that. You know, it cuts through the mind. It brings us into the present. It brings us <clears throat> embodiment. It, it, it's a portal for realizing uh, liberation, um, 
so many different things. The piece I want to focus on tonight is that mindfulness of the body is a vividly direct method for seeing, grasping, clinging, and learning how to let go. The whole of the Dharma. So it's so important, and it's right here, wired in. So I'll tell you a story um, about, I mean, it's a true story that happened. I was teaching a retreat out in the desert at Yucca Valley, where a number of us have practiced and taught a 10-day And a man, an engineer, was is his first ten day. I think he'd come to one or two shorter retreats, but his first ten day. And he came in on the first day to an interview. He was really upset and you know tight. And he said, "I'm mad. I took a lot of time off work. I came a long way, and I came here for one reason, which is I wanted to meditate in silence." And he said, and I wanted to become a kinder person. So what's happening is that the woman right behind me is coughing and hacking and blowing her nose. And, and he said, what, and what's happening to me, instead of being kind or being you know, in silence, is that I'm sitting there feeling angry and judgmental and wishing she would leave. And then he said, then I feel so guilty. Then I think I'm judging myself and then that's worse. And he, you know, he was struggling. He said, so, you know, I came here for this one thing and now I'm having this other experience. He said, when I'm not judging her or me, I'm just involved in these escape fantasies. And um, (laughs) no one here has ever had an escape fantasy, right? I mean, you can either have the kind of escape fantasy, which are these amazing fantasies of ways you actually leave the retreat. I and mean, we could write a book on the escape fantasies that are told to us in interviews. I mean, really, it's amazing. Or that we've had ourselves during retreats. Or then there's the form of escape fantasy, which is that you're just sitting there, and you go into this wild fantasy, and you escape. You leave. <laughs> you're, not, you're no longer here in your body or the practice. But like I said, no one here has ever done that, I'm sure. Right. Anyway, at this actual, at the retreat at Yucca Valley, I have to tell you one escape fantasy that one of the people told me in great detail. He really wanted to tell me the full detail of this. He took hours in this fantasy to develop, invent in his mind, he was an inventor of some sort, an electric push-button meditation chair and he was like, Deborah, and he did all. You know, he said, "You have your fingertips on these little keypads, and you never have to move, but you just barely move your finger, and you get these tiny little adjustments, and it's silent, and you're never in pain." And he said, "If you put one right outside that meditation door, he said you're going to raise so much money, <laughs> pain-free meditation." So he he spent, and he knew. He told me, "I tried the meditation for a while." And then I did this. Anyway, back to the engineer. Um, he was telling me about judging and being so involved in judging, etc. So I said, okay, I want you to notice whenever you go into the experience of either grasping at the silence, you know, I want it like this, or aversion, that's hating, pushing it away, get rid of her, judging, either grasping or aversion, notice that's what's happening, can note it, you can name grasping version, and then go directly with curiosity. So what is the sensation in my body 
when I'm involved in judging and grasping aversion. And so, and then tell me what happens. So, I talked to him the next day. He, he was ready to tell me immediately, first thing in the morning, what happened. Because it was powerful what happened. He said, so I, um, I did it. I paid attention and I noticed whenever I was judging her, my stomach, my jaw, and my shoulder got tight. Good noticing. Ah. <clears throat> Sometimes, he said, when I name it, grasping, aversion, it just would go away. But the tightness sort of stayed. And he noticed that. Good noticing. Then he said, and this is real interesting, he said, I, uh, one of the times I stayed with the tight feeling in my stomach. And he did it as a meditation, just being present, as we've been saying, with sensation. And he said, uh, as I was with it for a while, it became hot and churning. Hot and churning. And he said, I realize it's anger. And he said, all my life I've been angry a lot, but I have never once sat with, meditated with anger. He said, so I sat there, and I felt angry, and I got hot all over my body, and there was this churning, and I was sitting there experiencing this, and then everything became quiet and clear. That's interesting. Because that was really interesting for him. So, as an important sideline for us all to know, it is possible, even with these difficult emotions that normally sweep us away, it's possible to make those the meditation, the object of the meditation. Oh, terror. I can't be with terror. I'm running from terror. I'd rather think about the electric chair than terror, you know, whatever, the electric meditation chair. Rage, anger, sadness. We spend immense amounts of our energy avoiding all that stuff. And it is freeing to learn. Oh, like he did. That was his first time to have that experience. I remember vividly the very first time I sat with fear. I thought I was going to fall off my zafu and die. But I didn't. Actually lived. Oh, But we learn that it's possible to sit, to leave the story, to come into this sensation, and to be present with these strong sensations. Now, it is important to know there are some really strong emotions that come up for a very small percentage of people or situations that might feel like, whoa, this one I cannot sit with. And I, or I don't want to sit with it, or I can't sit with it alone. So honor that. There are some strong feelings that it's actually best to sit with a teacher or a therapist or somebody to be present with and learn, I can sit with that. But the vast majority, the vast majority of strong feelings can be the object of meditation. And what we get to learn, especially with the anger, is wow, I don't have to repress this and get a headache, and I don't have to act it out on somebody. I can can be present with it. I can experience it. He had heat and churning is what it came down to. Last night Philip talked about the freedom of 
getting a responsive instead of a reactive mind? The f- what would the freedom be that we would have in ourselves and in our world if we didn't have to act out our anger on other people? doesn't mean we shove it down and become all somehow false, but we just knew a way to be with it where we're not stopping energy, we're not dumping it or attacking, we're not violent. It's an incredible thing. So back to the engineer. You know, we're going to get through his story eventually. Um, so after he had that experience of sitting with the anger, he did notice he was more clear. And in the in the more clarity, he began. He said, "Now I notice every time she makes any sound, something in me tightens." He said, "I saw her walking across the property." And I tighten. So, exactly. So he's, what's happening at this point is mindfulness of the body is getting so awakened that he's noticing what's been going on all the time anyway. It's all going on. It's just that he hasn't been ever knowing. So um, now he's knowing it. And then he's, um, he's seeing all of this, this grasping and, and tight and tension in his body and he does something that someone right over here the other morning, a couple mornings ago, had discovered on her own. I don't remember if it was you. Um, someone over here said, I just noticed the tension and I tried softening it. I tried relaxing it and it affected my mind state. Well, that's what this guy did. He, he was noticing so much tension. He thought, well, what would happen if when I'm noticing it, I just relax? And he's like, this was as big a high. He says, Wow, it really shifted. I come right back to the moment most of the time and I'm present again. So um, please close your eyes for a moment. No need to move. Just close your eyes. There you go. And just allow your attention and your interest to drop down in your body. And notice if there any place there's a little bit of holding, a little bit of tension. Maybe in the jaw or shoulder. Also check your belly. Even deep down into the pelvis. It, and just soften. See if there's something that can just let go. And notice when it gets very subtle, this letting go. What's the effect on my mind when I let go even farther? You can open your eyes. So Stephen Levine says, the practice of softening the body is the physical act of letting go which accompanies the mental act of release, a physical trigger for a mental phenomena that reminds the body of the opportunity for peace. 
And it's, you know, it's so, this is really obvious. You know, we think, well, we, we, don't we all know this already? <laughs> Some part of us knows it, but there's a difference between just knowing it and actually learning, oh, phew, let go again in the body. We're learning how to let go of that clinging in this moment. I think, you know, all the cultures of the world or all the cultures inside of America are not all the same. But the the mass culture of America is a very tight, uptight culture. And uh, it's been commented on by many people, and it's demonstrated as we can look around. But I think... Part of that, it's obviously complicated, but um, we are less connected to each other in community and, and, and village. I mean, the mass, there's subcultures that are more connected, but the mass dominant culture is less connected than a lot of people in the world to each other and less connected to the earth. So it leaves us feeling insecure. And there's a sort of bracing. It's, it's just back there. And to learn, to start just practicing, let go, let go, let go, open, open. It's almost like we think, I'm going to hold it all together with my muscles, you know, since I feel unsafe here somehow. If I tighten up, I'll be safer. But it's the opposite. The more flexible, relaxed, and open, then the more resilient. So, the engineer. So he comes in. Now it's far into the retreat. I don't know, seven or so days. He's been doing this practice in silence. And he says, well, either that woman behind me isn't sick anymore or it was never a big deal. But anyway, because he said mostly, you know, I'm quiet and stuff. But what's going on is that I'm aware now that there is always some kind of tension in my body. And if I go to be with that, I sit with that tension, there's this sense of uh, unworthiness and regret. And he said, what's happening? And he was really, at this point, suffering. He was very open from all the meditation. He said, what's happening is I'm seeing, as I've never seen before, I have been an angry, righteous person, and I've hurt people. I've hurt myself. But he said, I'm, I'm seeing it. And, it's, he's, he's, and he was judging himself, really being rough. He was like turning now the anger on himself. And he was suffering. So um, right in the middle of, 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 of real suffering, of, if you've ever had a deep, profound, self-loathing attack, you know how bad he was feeling. Especially if you have a yogi mind, which is the name we give for this very sensitive thing where somebody just looks at you a little, you know, it's just such a big thing. So he was feeling this super magnified experience of of suffering and so I asked him I said so right now in this moment right when you're feeling so bad about yourself what's the experience of sensation in your body and he he had learned really well how to go in to check he said tight throat tight chest tight belly and you know exactly of course what I say can you be can you go to that level? Can you be present with this tightness in your body? And he knew how to do that. He went in there, and he was quiet for a few moments. And then he kind of 
blurted out. It was like a wave that just kind of broke through his body. He just blurted out and started crying. He said, it's all sadness and fear. It's all sadness and fear. And he kind of kept saying, you know, it was sort of like, my God, it's all sadness and fear. And he just, he was really seeing, wow, I've always felt that I wouldn't be, that I wasn't lovable and that was my fault. And he was in suffering. So I just reminded him of something that we remind you of every day here, at least once, that when we're suffering, it does not help to judge ourselves. It only tightens the knot if we add more judgment. I said, if you could meet this suffering, the seeing of what you've done, the knowing about your anger, if you could meet that with compassion... Try that. And he was very open, and he got real quiet. And for an interview, it was a long time, maybe one or two minutes, which is a long time to just sit quietly. He just sat there. And after this long time, he opened his eyes and said, I feel relaxed for the first time. And then he said, he was quiet again, and then he said, my body feels like a field of vibrating energy. So please again close your eyes. And just for a moment, just be aware if there's any way that you have judged you or self or your experience or suffered. You may have faced some kind of suffering here. Somehow rejected yourself. Whatever it is. And for just a moment, great compassion to myself. Compassion to how hard it sometimes is. And let your body soften with that. Let it in. And you can open your eyes. And that's just moments. Just the tiniest breath. But we learn that compassion, it melts it softens the body, mind. This whole process of, of, we're talking about letting go of the cling, compassion and love are like magic to open, to soften us. So, of course that happens, that retreats a lot. So over the week, there's a lot of dissolving of that solid shell. And that happened, of course, to this man, this engineer. So on the very last day he came and talked to me. He was kind of glowing because that's how people are at the end of retreats. You'll see in a few days. You'll think, no, not me. Well, look in the mirror at the end of the retreat. So he was sort of like that. He had the Vipassana glow on. And um, he said, well, something something has happened. He said, in meditation, 
is very calm, very clear. I'm just sitting, you know, sound arises and passes. A feeling comes and it just goes and thoughts just come and go. He said, that, that's great, but, but what happened? The big news is that I'm sitting there in that very quiet place. He was getting what he wanted. He wanted the quiet. And the woman next to me started coughing. He says, and he said, and my first response was, oh no. He said, and I noticed the tightness and I relaxed and that was it. He says, now she coughs. And it's just the sound of coughing. You know, it's like, ah. And he said, and I feel compassion. So for him, it was a big shift. So as he let go, as he relaxed all that grasping of how it was supposed to be, and moved from trying to change and uh, fix the ring, he let go, he moved into the gold of being, which naturally has this compassionate spaciousness in it that has room for life. It has room for the fact that people cough. So please again, if you would close your eyes. The monk asked the master, how is it when the leaves have fallen and the tree is bare? And the master replies, body exposed to the golden wind. What are the leaves that fall? We won't answer these questions, but we'll just wonder... Could they be the many parts of ourself, of our ego clingings and our attachments that we're letting go of, maybe? What is the body? And for just a moment, as we did the other day, if you let go of your normal concept and directly experience What is my body? What is this in this moment? It might be a set of sensations, pressures, tiredness, hay fever might be an open field of energy like the engineer touched. might be a combination. And what is the golden wind? Don't figure it out. Just wonder. What is a mystery that cannot be grasped with concepts? So we use metaphors and poetry to hint, to point. What's this golden wind that is invisible, yet precious, that transforms our life?
when it's time for the leaves to fall, and it is in every life there are times like that, if we struggle against that and hold on, we suffer. If with compassion we can let go, ah, there's the golden wind, which is transparent, clear, open, empty of self. yet filled with love. So you can open your eyes. So there's many great teachers that have let go so much that mostly what remains, what we see, is the gold. And... uh, Mahatma Gandhi was certainly one of these. Remember that word Mahatma means great soul? So Mahatma Gandhi was um, once teaching nonviolence in India to a group, a large group. And um, a person who was notorious for being fierce and dangerous, an agitator, came up onto the stage in front of this large audience and... uh, put his hands around Gandhi's throat and began strangling him. And there was an eyewitness who wrote about it. And the eyewitness said that everyone was, for a few moments, paralyzed. You know, that just the shock. Somebody's trying to kill Gandhi right in front of my eyes. So what would Gandhi do? This is the eyewitness. Such was the height to which Gandhi had grown. There was not even a flicker of hostility in his eyes, not a word of protest. He yielded himself completely to the flood of love within, and the man broke down like a child sobbing on the floor. So when Gandhi did this act in front of these people, he was embodying his life teaching of non-resistance. He was, he had already worked a lot on letting go. It's his path of attachment, including the attachment to his life. So to the degree you completely let go, he was able to stay totally present under any condition because of the degree of his letting go. He was in that golden wind of being So it's easy, you know, we hear about a Mahatma, a great soul, and we think, wow, you know, they did that. (laughs) And we we might think, well, they, um, these great souls, it's easy to see that the practice, the spiritual practice that Gandhi did or Mahatma wasn't just serving him, it ended up serving all of us because he was such a great soul. It's sometimes harder to know when we're sitting here in this room, dealing with a sore back, that there's somehow a benefit to all beings, but it's true. There really is interconnection. Everything truly is interconnected. And when one door opens inside, one letting go, 
it opens for everything. So what we're doing does count. From a poem I love, it says, May we fall through the darkness until our bodies become stars or rivers of love that humans can dip their cups into. I love that. May we fall through the darkness until our bodies become stars or rivers of love that humans can dip their cup into. So Gandhi had done that so much. He was a river of love. So for us in our practice here, may we fall through the darkness of all our fears and our sorrows until our bodies become stars or rivers of love. And may we, in our practice, have the courage and the perseverance to stay in our bodies and to learn about what is grasping and to learn about letting go. Is in that letting go over and over <clears throat> that that whatever you call it, the star, the river of love, the great innate perfection, in time can begin to twinkle and shine a bit more. And and in time, you know, there's momentary glimpses, and in time, there's more uh, sense of confidence or trust that who we are is so much more than our fears, so much more than our pain. There's much more embodiment as time goes on. So we can look at the great teachers like the Dalai Lama or Deepama or Diana, <laughs> you know, who exude <laughs> wisdom and love, and Julie and Philip and Franz. I'm sorry. Anyway who exude, you know, kindness and and clarity and love and wisdom, um, joy. And in them, we can see it's so clear that paying close attention to their body-mind process did not turn them into self-absorbed, apathetic, dry people. Not at all. I mean, look at them. They're so juicy. (laughs) The practice of seeing our grasping and learning to open it gives birth to the heart of the bodhisattva. The bodhisattva practices and lives in order to serve all beings. So this time I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm just going to ask you to take 10 seconds to wiggle a little, to squirm just a little. I learned this from my wonderful, beloved Sokni Rinpoche. And then, one more relax. Ah, yeah. And feel the relax. What's that feel like in there? You can learn so much about embodiment by noticing the sensations that accompany relaxation. So I'll finish with this poem by Lama Jandan Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or undo. 
wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax, this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is here. Open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any farther. Go, don't search any farther. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. There's nothing to do or undo. There's nothing to want. Nothing is missing. So let's just close our eyes one last time. This talk was given by Deborah Chamberlain Taylor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 29, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.